The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovedo.com. Our sermon text this morning is from Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be, may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we do ask that you would teach us this morning to be those who wait for you, to so trust in your steadfast love and your ever-renewing faithfulness, to trust as well in your record of rescue and provision, particularly, Lord, as you've given that to us at the cross. Teach us so to trust in these things that we learn to wait and hope, even when our sight is obscured and, and our our, our, our knees go weir- grow weary. Um, you are a good and faithful Father, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And we do trust in you, Lord, and teach us to trust more deeply. We pray all of this through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I've explained a number of times over the past um, year plus that I am this crazy man who is working through the book of Revelation and the Sermon on the Mount at the same time. And uh, some people ask, first of all, how do you do that? And I say, well, you know, we bounce back and forth. We look at sections in Revelation, then sections in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, But then also I'm asked, you know, why in the world are you doing that? And So uh, I apologize for repeating my explanation, but not everybody's heard it. Um, I think the book of Revelation gives us this glorious picture of the way things are supposed to be. Uh, This picture of the direction in which things are moving. The direction of, uh, just the picture of the end for which you were created. That there will be a time that this kingdom that is portrayed in the book of Revelation will become real in its fullness, and you will be a part of that. It is this kingdom for which Jesus 
came and gave his life so that we might be rescued from what Paul calls the kingdom of darkness and brought into this kingdom of light and its fullness is, is pictured for us there as an end goal um, and, 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 a, and, a, and a focus of our hope in the book of Revelation. The, book, the, the Sermon on the Mount, in particular ways to me, is a revelation to us, an instruction to us of what life in that kingdom is like. And particularly, it is a call to us as Christians to, as much as we are able to conform our lives to, the lo- to, to, to what that kingdom will be and can be now. And so the Sermon on the Mount, so, so doing the, these two together, you know, there is the kingdom for which we are created. This is something of the, the guidance we need of what it means to live within that kingdom. And that's why so much of the teaching of the book of the Sermon on the Mount, book of the Sermon on the Mount, sorry, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the, the reason so much of it feels so odd, awkward, and difficult for us is because it is, as one person put it, an ethic from beyond. It is a way of living that comes from elsewhere and is given to us here now. And it is, it is something towards which we should longingly aspire, even though it's difficult and even though we may stumble along the way. So doing the two things together, that's the logic. Um, you know, maybe it makes sense, maybe it doesn't. But uh, as we now turn back to uh, Matthew the, uh, 5, 6, and 7, and particularly Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, um, you know, I do so with the assumption, and I know it's an assumption that does not apply to everyone who would be gathered in a room like this, I do it with the assumption that you would desire to conform your life to this kingdom. And that's not going to be true of all of us. Some of us are skeptical about Christianity. Some of us are skeptical about the church. Some of us are skeptical about this kingdom. Some are skeptical about life going in any particular direction. And I get all of that. I I get that not all of us are animated by a desire to find out how Jesus would have us live so that we might live that way. Um, and, and, and that's okay. I want to call you into that. I want to woo you into that. Uh, I, I, I want to give you at least a taste of a different way of thinking, a taste of a different way of living, of an alternate view. You know, following Jesus as he outlines a way of life for us here doesn't necessarily mean wandering around uh, aimlessly wearing sandals and robes, but it does mean that we need to come to, in some degree into contact with who Jesus is uh, and, and what it is he expects of us, especially in a world that is as troubled and scary as our own. I'd like you to see that there is a different way of living than the way most of us live. And honestly, that's going to be a different way of living than most of us live within the church. We haven't always gotten this the way it should, you know, got, done this well. Um, I want us to have a taste of the way things will be so that we can begin to, to um, you know, live our lives and to experience that which will be. And again, the church has failed here often more than it succeeds. But you know, the degree to which we allow ourselves to be drawn into this vision of the way things can be, I think, is the degree to which we will find ourselves um, longing for and desiring and, and actually uh, modeling for a lost world 
this world that is yet to come. The other thing I think is important here to keep in mind, and then we'll get into the content for this morning. Um, we are a people that hate authority. Uh, we hate to be told what to do. We do not like to be told what to do. And if you think you, you do like that, well, I think you, you know, we, we could talk about that. But I don't think we like to be told what to do. And what we come to in chapters 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus bringing a word from his heavenly father, our heavenly father, telling us often what to do. And the important thing here is to understand where the source of this language is coming from. The commands are not arbitrary. These come from throughout Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the repeated refrain that they come from a heavenly father. And that father language is critical to the Sermon on the Mount. There is a person, a true and living God, who is worthy of our respect, worthy of our obedience, but also in terms of the way he presents himself to us, he is one full of love and concern and compassion as a father is for his children. He is speaking to us from that place of concern and compassion. And we need to understand that there are commands, there are rules that though they are difficult, the source from which they come make them worthy and make them that which ought to be pursued. Uh, and there should be security in that. So, in chapter 5, Jesus outlined uh, some an ethical considerations. How do we treat one another? How do we engage in society? How do we relate to one another? In chapter 6, he's changing our focus from those primary relationships to how do we interact with God himself? How do we respond to him himself? What, what is the nature of this vertical relationship? How do we live our lives before God? He touches upon three things Then we're going to be looking at here in the short term. Prayer, uh, almsgiving, and fasting. Curiously, he says these are things that are to be a part of our lives. He's not saying, you know, you're, you're in the Christian self-help section and you say, you know, I think I'd like to pray. Let me look for some prayer books because I've decided I want to pray or I want to learn how to be a better giver or maybe this fasting thing is something I want to learn about. Um, now, he's not saying these are some optional ways to be Christian. Uh, the, the fascinating thing here is that it's all assumed that we do these things. Uh, chapter 6, verse 2 says, when you give to the needy. Uh, verse 5 says, when you pray. Chapter, or verse 16 says, when you fast. It's not if you're going to do these things, um, but if you're a part of this kingdom, these are going to be parts of our, um, of our practice. Now, let me say up front, uh, you know, the, the, the kindest way I can put this is I'm no expert in any of these things. That's the kindest way. Um, in the darkness and the you know, quietness of my heart, I might say that I'm lousy at all of these things. Um, but I, you know, the text is asking us to fix these things before us, to pursue them. And I don't promise that in pursuing them, we will find all the happiness we're after and the complete and full satisfaction that we desire. I'm not promising that we'll find some kind of emotional and spiritual high that will lift us up over the difficulties and confusions of life, but I think what I can promise is that the degree to which we apply ourselves to these things are the degree to which we will grow to be more like Jesus and that we will have a church that more and more reflects the glory of God and less the pettiness of men, and I think those are goals worth pursuing.
This is the path that Jesus says is a good one to walk, and I think you can trust him. Now, this, I said that the text addresses prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Actually, it addresses the almsgiving first. I'm going to skip over that and delay that because it spent, this, this chapter spends the bulk of its time talking about prayer, and so I want to, want to land there. And the lesson he gives us here is really quite simple, that you know, the God of truth desires truth from his praying children. Those who pray uh, to God, who is a God of truth, desires that we pray truthfully. And you know, if we boil that down in the end, what he is saying is uh, pray, uh, people of God. The call is to be those who pray. So we're going to look into what he's saying about, about prayer. Because, you know, what do we say? Everybody knows how to pray. <laughs> um, yeah, we do. Um, but then we, we, we kind of uh, add things to it, and we, we, can, we confuse the matters, and we complicate it. So um, as Jesus is teaching here is that we're to pray, first of all, with uncomplicated motives. Uncomplicated motives. Um, Jesus presents a simple vision for what prayer is in this text. Uh, he's making a, he makes a contrast in verses 7 and 8, which we'll look at later. I just want to look at the tail end of verse 8, uh, where he says, your father, um, know, uh, sorry, uh, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So just that. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And the, implicit here is the simple idea of what prayer is. It's asking our father for things. He knows what we need. But... And just simply what prayer is, is asking God for things. Let's not complicate that. This is what we think about most often when we think about prayer. Uh, to pray means to ask God for things, and that's okay. Yes, prayer is other things, and we can flip through the scriptures, and we've given examples of them through this service. Prayer is praise. Prayer is confession. Prayer is thanksgiving. Prayer is, in a sense, a devotional posture. Prayer is an act of dependency. But we could you know, color it with all those colors. But let's, sometimes in talking about prayer, we tend to say you know, these, uh, that it is somehow selfish for us to focus upon prayer as simply asking things. And I don't think that's the case at all. That is, you know, Jesus says, that's what you're praying for. Your, your father knows what you need before you ask him, but it's okay for you to be asking him. And let's not downplay that. There's nothing wrong for asking God for things. This is our fundamental impulse in prayer, to ask things from God. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. You have needs. We all have needs. Our needs are, are clearly, and when we boil them down, beyond our ability to address them. But you know what? We have a Heavenly Father who loves us, whose desire it is to provide for us those things which we, which we need. And so ask Him. He wants us to ask Him. That's the simple and most primary and most uncomplicated purpose of prayer. And I've been blessed to know people who come to prayer with such an uncomplicated vision. Um, you know, I had a young man in my church years and years ago who would just say things like, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It wouldn't hurt us to ask Him for a couple. That's not selfish. That's truth. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has every provision that we might need. And he invites us to let our requests be made known to him. That's the way the Apostle Paul puts it. It's okay to ask God for things. I, I hear Christians struggle with, well, I shouldn't ask for this, that, or the other. It seems too petty or too grand. 
Let God be the judge of that. You know, in a bit here, we're going to look at a portion of the text that says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. That's something fairly basic and simple and ordinary. It's okay to ask him for that. We're going to pray, your kingdom come. Well, that's pretty big and grand. You know, let's ask him for that. Um, Now, where does it go wrong? Where it goes wrong is when we treat something like prayer for purposes other than those for which it was intended. You know, there have been times I've been stuck in a situation, something, well, stuck, I'm going to overuse the word, but, you know, something is stuck, and I can't get it, get it, get it to come apart. And, and I'll take, uh, you know, what do I have? I don't have anything. I'll pull my keys out of my pocket. Ah, I have a piece of metal here. I'm going to pry this thing out. I'm going to use my key to pry this thing apart. What do I end up with? Uh, something that's still stuck and a bent key, which now is useless because I can't get it quite straight again. I have taken something for, that was intended for one use, and I've tried to use it for something for which it was never intended, and nothing works. Uh, this applies to our religious life. Look at verse 1, which is applying to the whole principle here. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. When we take these religious activities and, and, and use them, in order to gain reputation, to draw attention to ourselves, to make people think how religious we are, we are using them for a purpose for which they were never intended, and we bend them to the point of uselessness. He applies this to, the, to prayer specifically in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. There again, you see this confused motive, that they may be seen by others. When we are more desirous of being known for prayer than we are for prayer itself, we have bent it. It's not wrong, by the way, to be known for praying. It's actually a good thing. I know people who pray they are known for praying, and they're the people I want to go to and say, would you please pray for this or that? My friend David Scotchy has written a couple of books on prayer. He's known for prayer. My first conversation with him on the phone, uh, at the end of the conversation, he asked if he could pray, pray for me. Uh, we went to a restaurant and had lunch, and the waitress came over, and he says, you know, we're, we're, we're some Christians. You know, is there anything you'd like us to pray for? And, you know, it sounds hokey. It sounds pretentious, but it wasn't. It was honest. He loves to pray, and he loves to pray for others. Um, that's not wrong. This is not somebody who was praying in order to be known for prayer. This was somebody who was praying because he likes to pray. But when the outcome of being known for prayer becomes the goal, the thing is corrupted. It's bent. Our prayer should be uncomplicated by by multiple motives. We need the simple motive of asking God for things and, and hoping he would give it. We should pray to pray. And Doing so in public is not a problem, okay? Jesus prayed in public. Paul prayed in public. Many of the saints prayed in public. Praying in public is not the problem. Praying in public in order to make people think that we're good prayers is the problem. (laughs) So, examine your motives in prayer. But what struck me is that I don't know really anybody here who is clamoring for the opportunity to pray in public so that people could think 
high of them and think great thoughts of them. You know what I see? I see people who do not want to pray in public for fear that people would develop a low opinion of them. And you know, I think those are just the same side of the same coin, uh, two sides of the same coin. We're, we're looking at prayer, we're resisting the, the opportunity and privilege and gift of praying with others because we're afraid people will think our prayers are too simplistic, uh, too, too inconsequential, uh, that we'll stumble over things. We might express heresy in them. I, there have been times when I prayed out loud and realized I just prayed something that was heretical. Again, I think God's able to filter through that. Okay? Um, I think I need to hear others pray. I need to hear, it doesn't have to be fancy, I need to hear what is touching your heart and what you're longing for. You need to hear each other pray, and sometimes I think we do not pray out loud because we're scared to death of the judgment that others are going to bring to us. So we're not standing in the, you know, in the, there praying, hoping that people would think highly of us. We are not praying because we're afraid they will think too low of us, and I think those are related concerns. The church is then impoverished and we are not blessed by what you have to bring. But again, the point here is let's not complicate prayer with a concern for reputation. Let's not turn good works into a photo op. That's to corrupt the thing. But rather, let's be a people who pray with God alone as the prime audience. Um, let's pray with uncomplicated motives. Okay? Secondly, and again, I, I think all of this is so obvious but so many of the obvious things in my life, I need somebody to come to me and tell me again because it's that kind of thing. Yeah, you're right. But the second thing is pray with unadorned honesty. Unadorned honesty. Um, our prayers don't need to be pretty. Our, there are some beautiful prayers out there. <laughs> Um, you know, somebody pointed out Thomas Cromwell, who was the, the original author of the Book of Common Prayer and was executed by the crown uh, when uh, the, you know, the queen died and her service was held. It was Thomas Cromwell's prayers that were being used in the service of her, of her, of her funeral. Um, there is, there was a, there's a beauty and an integrity and, a, and, a, and, a, and an enduring nature of those prayers. There is nothing wrong with beautiful prayers. And when, it's, when I open my mouth to pray, they're not going to be beautiful. That's okay. Okay? Um, an uncomplicated understanding of the purpose of prayer, that it is simply to speak to God and reveal to Him what's on our heart and ask for things, that's going to affect the content of those prayers. Uh, look at verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 7. Um, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. All right, now there's no problem with just many words. You can, have, you can pray a long prayer. Um, the concern here is we do not impress God with having the right words in the right order. Uh, we don't need to string together words just so in order to impress God. Um, we need to understand what is Jesus opposing here. You know, he doesn't oppose praying things like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the prayer he taught us. Uh, the concern is not the use of prepared words. 
Um, you know, I grew up being taught a prayer, God is great, God is good, God, I thank you for this food. That was formative for me as a child. Uh, you know, later in my life, other prayers have, been, 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 have resonated in my heart. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, and so forth. That's a prayer that gives me words for emotions, for thoughts, for concerns that are in my heart that my own tongue is having trouble forming. Um, the, you know, formulaic prayers can help us ask of God the things that are in our hearts when words fail us. We pray, by the way, together as a congregation using forms all the time. We'll end this service with a prayer of praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him. All creatures here below, praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Um, that's a prayer. It's a prayer of praise that unites us and gives us words. And I, this is not what Jesus opposes. The empty phrases and many words that Jesus speaks about, I think, concern those times when people string words together with the intention of impressing God or manipulating Him into action. When we treat the words we use in prayer like a magical incantation, you know, you look through a book, um, I, I, I want to get, uh, you know, ice cream for dinner. Let's turn to page 622. Here is the way you pray for ice cream for dinner. You put the words together in this way, and, you know, you make sure that you have one knee on the ground, not two knees on the ground, and that you, you know, I don't know. You know, if we treat prayer like it's a magical incantation in a book of, book of magic, and if we get it just right, then God will respond. You know, that's empty words. Uh, that's not what we are to do. God is not a puzzle to be navigated. He's not a vending machine for which we find the right currency. And isn't that sometimes what we do? You know, if I pray just long enough and with just the right words, I will get the response that I am aiming for. Like if I put the sufficient money into the machine, the Coke will pop out. Our prayers are not magic. They are to be simple, unadorned, honest words spoken to God as a child would speak to his father. No, I think better than that. You know, children, I, you know, sometimes you, <laughs> you speak to your parents, you know, there's an element of manipulation planned. You know, hey, Dad, you notice how good I've been this last week? Okay, what is it you want? You know, we, we come to our Father simply acknowledging that He is someone who cares for us and loves us, and we have a need, and God, this is what I need, period. Um, we don't need to make deals with God. You know, God, if, if you heal my friend, I'll become the first missionary to Mars, I promise. Um, we don't have any need to leverage God. We don't have any need to make Him think highly of us. Why? Why do we pray in Jesus' name? We pray in Jesus' name because we have the privilege of coming before our Heavenly Father because we are covered in the blood of Christ and we are united with Him and we have every right to be in His presence that His Son Jesus has to be in His presence. We pray in Jesus' name not as a magical incantation, but as a recognition that, God, I know in and of myself and my sinful lack of holiness and lack of righteousness that I am not worthy to be in your presence, but I'm coming to you in Jesus' name. I'm coming to Him who, who lived for me and died for me and has called me to Himself. And He has said, I can come to you and I can pray. So I come in His name. And the Father looks at us and says, what do you want? And we can express what we want. You know, unadorned honesty. We don't need to fear about getting it right. 
That's, you know, do not be like them, Jesus says. Your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. He is your heavenly Father. It's not the words that matter. Pray what's on your heart. You're a child coming to your father, so make your prayers simple and honest. Years ago, when I was in college, I was leading a high school group in a time of prayer together, and, and I asked the group to, you know, let's pray together, and we prayed sort of um, short, random prayers. A student named Jeff simply said, I love you, Jesus. That's all that came to his mind. That's all he said. He meant it. It was honest. It was not fancy. It was brief. It was unadorned. It was honest. And that's the character that should constitute our prayers. Prayer should arise from uncomplicated movies. They should be spoken with unadorned honesty. But you know what I think is the hardest piece <laughs> is this third point. That we need to pray with unfeigned or unfaked expectation. Um, do not be like them, Jesus says in verse 8. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Or verse 6. Go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, the point is, we ask God for things. What's hard is to believe that He delights to answer. Now, one could infer from this language here that since the Father already knows why ask, that's not the point. Jesus is saying we need to ask you know, and I think there's beauty here in understanding that even though Jesus says the Father knows what you need, He is still telling us to ask. There's mystery here that we do not fully understand, but it delights God to be able to reward His people by giving to them that which their hearts desire. He is a Father who delights in our asking so that He can answer, but we do resist that. We resist asking in the first place, and sometimes we resist asking in the first place because we're afraid of being disappointed. You know, we, um, He is a God who delights to give good gifts to His children, and that's where we need to be as those who delight in the promises of Heavenly Father, who delights to hear and delights to give, and we do so against the background of a very good memory. Our memory tends to fix on those things where we didn't get what we asked for. All of us could amass a list of things that we've asked for, you know, good things, unselfish things, which have not come to pass. David prayed and prayed for the life of his child, right? And he prayed and prayed and prayed until the child died. He did not get what he asked for. But every impression that we're left with is that he prayed to God, believing that God would give him his answer. Is that a conflict? Is that a contradiction? I don't think so. The point is we ask, believing that God desires to give. Can he give everything? Must he give everything? No. But you know, the, the implication there is that then why ask? No, we ask because God wants us to ask. We are to pray, and we're to pray with unfeigned expectation. Put aside that list of what you might call unanswered prayer. By the way, the Bible gives no qualifications or explanations as to why things, some things come and th some things don't. Lots of us as humans try to give explanations, try to shape God into such a way in which that makes perfectly good sense to us. 
But what the Bible gives to us is simply the invitation to pray to a heavenly father with the expectation that what we pray, our father hears, and what our father hears, he considers with every bit of serious concern. We should pray expecting that God will give that for, that for which we ask. Because that's the space he wants us to inhabit. He wants us to inhabit this, this posture that assumes that what we ask of our loving Heavenly Father, it is his desire to give. It's a posture that depends not upon our weakness, that we are not ones who are going to, I'm sorry, to, we're not going to look at our weakness in our weakness and our human weakness and think, okay, I have no help from God, therefore I'm going to conquer this thing. No, he wants our posture to be God. I, I'm, I'm living this life. I'm taking this step. I don't know what's on the other side. But God, can you give me this? Can you give me the assurance? Can you give me encouragement? Can you give me the help I need? This is the posture of a father and child. We should pray and ask with unfeigned expectation, not trying to persuade God of how good we have been or what we might pledge to do. Uh, we should pray not worried about how fancy our words or how carefully spoken they are. We should simply ask God from the heart out of a deep affection for the one to whom we pray, believing that he wants to answer. I think the most honest prayers are found in the Psalms. The most honest prayers are full of anger, frustration, puzzlement, and tears. But in every case, the praying is expecting God to hear and to act. Just pray. We don't pretend to really understand it all, but we believe that prayer is more than just something that shapes us emotionally and and psychologically, many will say, well, prayer works. We need to pray. There are studies that show that prayer makes people happier, so pray. Um, well, all of that may or may not be true, but we are not saying pray because it has a positive psychic effect on you. No, prayer, as the Catechism for Young Children reminds us, is asking God for things, asking a real God for real things. Prayer is addressing a person who has told us to ask him and told us to call him Father. It's more than just a psychic experience. It is to ask an ever-present, infinite, eternal God, believing that he is one who delights to give us things. So pray. Pray. Pray short prayers. Pray long prayers. But pray. Prayer is not somehow more valid if you pray for an hour than if you pray for 30 seconds. It's not more valuable. What's valuable is that you are talking to God. You know, uh, if you can pray for an hour, great. But if you can pray for 30 seconds, that's great too. He's honored by prayer, period. So pray. Your Father knows not only what you need, but that you need. So pray. You know, we're still haunted. A friend who was very active in a church um, a number of years ago had some need, and she prayed. And as she told me about this, she said, I prayed and I prayed, and then I finally realized that no one was there. She walked away from the church. She's walked away from Christianity altogether. And there's some sense in which we understand her logic, right? It's a good logic based upon the data that she's willing to admit. Sometimes we feel the same way. God, you must not be there because I've asked and asked and asked, and it's a good thing I'm asking for, and you're not giving it. But you know what we do is we tend to exclude data that messes with our logic. And that data that messes with that logic is the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of the revelation of the cross and of God's love for us. And Paul says, if God is for us, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
God has given to us His very Son. He knows what we need before we ask it. He knows the needs far beyond what we could ever ask, dream, or imagine. God wants us to assume that posture where we acknowledge Him and praise Him and honor Him by asking Him. God works and gives and is a person, not an idea. And we pray in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of the kingdom that is yet to come. We pray as those who are forgiven. We pray to one who has given his life for us, or we pray in the name of one who has given his life for us, to the Father who demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, his son died for us. It's not illogical to pray. So pray. How do you pray? Just talk to him. To something like this, hey God, I'm not so good at this prayer thing, but Pastor Randy says that it doesn't matter, so if I'm not doing this right, blame him. There's my invitation. Yeah, make a list. I have no problem with lists. Long lists, grocery lists, mile-long lists. You know, you begin talking to people and you realize how many things there are to pray about, how many needs there are, how many, you know, how, how brokenness is just you know, oozing through us and how much we need and desire. So make a list, but, you know, start small. Make a list of three things that you want and just pray for it. Not as some kind of test to say, God, if you haven't answered these things within three months, then I'm going to disbelieve you. But just as a means to reminding yourself that we have a God who knows your needs but wants us to ask. Or talk about him, talk to him about things as they come up during the day. However you do it, pray. So pray with uncomplicated motives, with unadorned honesty and unfeigned expectation. Um, you know, if I, I would love then here to tell you a story about a time I prayed for something radically impossible, and it happened. Um, well, I don't have such a story because, you know, I'm a sinful man who tends to explain those spectacular answers away. So I need this message probably more than any of you. I need someone to constantly be telling me, Randy, just pray. Just pray. Don't try to figure it out. God wants you to pray, so pray. God hears. God gives good things. I was sitting around a table Friday night with some old friends, each of whom had stories of impossible things, impossible things. So press me sometime. I'll find some of those impossible stories because they're there. I could tell things that I'm very tempted to call miracles. And did they necessarily come because I prayed for that particular impossible thing? Not necessarily, but they came because I was praying. They came because I have a heavenly Father who has encouraged me to pray to Him. They came because I have a heavenly Father who knows what I need before I even ask Him. So the encouragement of this text, people of God, is just pray. Let's, let's pray. We're grateful, God, for this encouragement. There's so much we don't understand and so much we want to explain away. But Father, you have demonstrated your love for us in multiple ways. You have cared for us in ways beyond our imagination. You have placed around us people who are faithful in prayer and who love us through their prayers. And so I pray, Father, that you would take away whatever barriers yet remain in our hearts and that we would pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.